So good to have you all here this uh, beautiful day. What a nice little rainfall we had. and uh, Just to think how wonderful our Lord is to make all of this for us to enjoy as we're here together to honor him and to praise him and to uh, fellowship one with another. The time is at hand. The time is at hand. Somebody asked me the other day at, at church, well, this was a few weeks ago, they, they said, are you wearing two watches? And I said, no, I'm wearing a watch and a notification device. <laughs> but it's a watch. And, and it, it got me thinking, you know, I've, I've always liked watches and, and, and stuff like that, but <clears throat> I think I, I became obsessed not so much with the watch, but with time. And especially when uh, you read in the scriptures about time. You know, our time is in his hands when we surrender ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our time is in his hands. We're living in a day and time that is oozing out of scripture all around us. Scripture is being, uh, prophecy is being fulfilled practically every day in, in many ways. And that's one reason why I think that uh, <clears throat> this particular theme of a vision, the vision of dealing with end time prophecy, dealing with the return of Jesus Christ, dealing with the things that are happening all around us. It's, it's, it's time that the church gets busy and understands these things. Because there's so, much of the seg uh, there, there's so many segments of the church today that would rather put prophecy aside. They don't see it as important. But prophecy is, it has, has a tremendous uh, uh, presence in the word of God. You know, some, some say about 26% of all of the scripture is, is, is prophecy. Between 26, up, upwards of 30. I say more, but I, but I think that that's because we, we spend so much time realizing the, the importance of what's happening in the world today. And I tell you this, I, I, I tell the congregation every time I can, we live in an insane world. This world has become completely insane. But that is exactly what Jesus said it was going to be before he would come again. Now, something that we did, and I have to tell you, it was a blessed worship time tonight. A blessed worship time. We began with a song, The Lion and the Lamb. And, and uh, much of what we see in that particular song is going to be seen tonight and throughout uh, Pastor, Sandy, uh, Pastor Sandy's teachings. Pastor Sandy Adams, by the way, who's with us, and we're so blessed to have him uh, from Calvary Chapel, Stone Mountain, Georgia. And I, I failed to mention to him this afternoon that uh, I have a southern connection, too. I'm from, I'm from south of the border, but that, that's not a matter. <laughs> so is most of us here. Uh, no, actually, I, my, my, I have family in, in uh, Mobile, Alabama. So, uh, yeah, uh, I wanted to let you know I got some ties down there. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, we're not going to talk about that because I don't know where he, he's at on that, <laughs> on that issue. 
Oh, with the dogs. Oh. Okay. All right. Well, praise the Lord. <laughs> but uh, what we're going to be doing tonight and tomorrow is really getting deep into the understanding of what we need to know as we see the day of Christ approaching, the day of his return, primarily the day of his coming to take us home. Because that's kind of the first step in all of this. Really, the first step is what we're going to deal with tonight. That is the deception. And deception started, of course, for us in Genesis chapter 3. Started in the garden. And it has just picked up speed ever since then. Our text is verses 1 and 2 of Revelation chapter 6. Let me read that and then let's pray and get into our study this evening. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering, and to conquer. Father, we ask for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit this evening to come and bring to us, Lord, to our minds and to our hearts, your wisdom, your understanding, your grace, your mercy. Lord, open up your word to us, not only this evening, but tomorrow, Lord, and, and every moment that we are speaking, Lord, about our wonderful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're so thankful, so blessed to be here, to be away from the things of the earth, uh, to, to, to be away from the things that, you know, the, the, the rat race and all the things that seem to grab our attention. We're here now, Lord. We want to hear one thing, and that is we want to hear your voice. And we want to read your word. And we want it, Lord, to be put into our lives and into our hearts. And then, Lord, we want to go all out for you. And so we pray, Father, that you would speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. When I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior nearly 47 years ago in the middle of a noisy and crowded student union building on our university campus. It was, it was at a time when, when much of the conversation and discussion among fellow believers was about the rising interest in biblical end-time prophecy. Spurred on by a best-selling book written by Hal Lindsey, The Late Great Planet Earth. How many of you have heard of that book? How many of you have that book? Less hands. Okay. <laughs> published in 1970, and I'm happy to say that I still have my original copy of that book, but sadly I, I forgot which box of books it's in after having made so many moves <laughs> in my life. But it was then that, that I began to hear terms that had been foreign to me for some time. Terms like the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, the tribulation period, the great tribulation period, the second coming, one world government, one world religion the millennial kingdom or the thousand-year reign of Christ and, and, and other terms and the like. And that was a lot for a guy that had, you know, just been brought up in the Catholic Church, you know, and because I never heard any of those terms when I was in the Catholic Church. 
I, and I'm honest, I, I, I'm being honest with you, I never heard one of those terms when I was in the Catholic Church. But there I was, just hearing and soaking it all in because it was exciting to see it in the Word of God, to see it in the Bible. You know, when you're just a young Christian, you just get so excited about seeing things happening and then tying it together with what's happening in, 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 our, in our day and time. Of course, as I said, this was 47 years ago. But it brought up these questions in my mind. Was, was the world really coming to an end? Were we really living in the last days of history? Was Jesus really going to break through the clouds and gather his bride, the church, and snatch her away to be with him forever? And what about the state of Israel? The very focal point, the epicenter, if you will, of all Bible prophecy. What about Israel? That was the question that intrigued me the most. Because back in 1967, in the summer of 1967, in June of 1967, began to hear on the news, on the network news, because that's all there was. There was just only network news, three channels. But they began to talk about a conflict in Israel, in Jerusalem in particular. We know it today as the Six-Day War. But I, I, I never left the TV. I mean, every time there was a report on TV, I stayed there and I looked at it. And this was before I came to the Lord. Then in 1973, having now come to the Lord and, and, and being, being in, in college and, and, uh, and being saved and learning about the things happening in the end times, and seeing that on Yom Kippur of, of 1973, uh, Syria had attacked Israel on their most holy day. And it took a while, but Israel recovered. And of course, they took the Golan Heights from where they were being plastered by the bombs that were coming in. Israel has always been very special to me. More special now than ever before, having been there a number of times and, and, and realizing, you know, more than just a, a spiritual connection, too. It's, it's, it's a precious, precious place and a precious people in God's heart. And it needs to be in ours, too. And so in those days, the book of Revelation was now being read and it was being exposited and it was taught more frequently. And thanks to pastors like our own Chuck Smith and many others, it wasn't being kept or guarded as some mysterious, some cryptic, some highly obscure document that really couldn't and shouldn't be understood except in a very spiritualistic or, or symbolic way. It was now being opened. It was truly being open. It was being exposed. The message was being revealed. And that is exactly and actually the very title of the book. The revelation. The revealing. And notice, it isn't the revelation of St. John the Divine, which is the title of, uh, in, in the King James Version of the Bible, uh, for the book of Revelation. And I say that because I use the King James. But it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
verse 1 of chapter 1. The revelation, the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people say, you know, when you hear the word apocalypse, you know, it's like, ooh, ooh, spooky things. Apocalypse just means a revealing. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signed and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein. For the time is at hand. The time is at hand. As I mentioned, the Greek word for revelation is apokalupsis, which means a, dis, a disclosure, a, a revealing, a, an appearing, or a coming, and, and or a manifestation. The word itself comes from the root word apokalupto, which refers to taking off a cover or a lid. And, and hence, the, the Lord God is, is wanting to take the lid off. In other words, he wants to blow the cover off of prophetic speculations. And he wants to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who is and who was and who is to come. It is a revelation that God the Father gave to his son to show his servants, both in John's time and those down through the ages, and now to us, of the things that must shortly come to pass, for the time is at hand. The time is at hand. You might be thinking, well, that, that must have been nearly 2,000 years ago. You're right. And when did the last days begin? When did the last days start? Well, we're told in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And then even the Apostle Peter would refer to the last days. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 7, where he says, Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. But notice verse 5. For this they willingly, they willingly are ignorant of. Now, did you get that? For this they willingly are ignorant of. That's present tense. Not future tense. That's present tense. Interesting. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old... And the earth standing out of water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, and notice this, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire, against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Is it any wonder that those who lived in the early church in the first century, they were waiting for Jesus too? They were looking for the coming of the Lord. So certainly then, even then, there was no question that the Lord Jesus could return at any moment. 
That's what they were looking for. Even in Luke's parallel account of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28. And consider how, what he's saying here. Yes, he's looking at a future time. He's wanting us to look at this time. There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity. That sounds like what, I just, what we just read in the paper this yesterday, right? The sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But notice verse 28. And when these things begin to come to pass, then look up. He's telling his audience as well. Look up. And lift up your heads, for your redemption draweth nigh. Your redemption draws near. It can come at any moment. So getting back to Revelation chapter 1 for a moment, there in verse 19, the Lord tells John this in Revelation 1.19, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. Things which thou hast seen, past. <clears throat> chapter 2 focuses on the things which are. By the way, chapter 1 focuses on the past. Well, relatively near past because it was what he had just seen of, of the revelation of Jesus there. Uh, chapters 2 and 3 will focus on the things which are because there Jesus speaks of the churches. The seven churches of Asia Minor, but nonetheless also kind of a picture of, 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 of the churches uh, throughout the ages, you know. We, we're not going to spend time on that. We've talked about it before. While chapters 4 on, from chapter 4 on, those chapters refer to the things which shall be hereafter, the future, that which is yet to happen. And after chapter 3, the church, per se, is no longer mentioned. You have no mention of the church. It's not written, the word is not found in chapter 3. Or, I'm sorry, in, in, in chapters 4 on. And it prompts us to, to see Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, as, as what we call an allusion, an not an illusion, but allusion, A-L-L-U-S-I-O-N, or, or a suggestion, as you will, uh, if you will, of, of the rapture of the church. For you look at verse 1 of chapter 4, where it says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, come up here, and I will show thee things which must be Hereafter. Now, before we go on, I'm just really wanting to establish a little bit of the vision that Revelation is, because we are going to truly focus on chapter 19 tomorrow.
but it is important for us to at least have that foundation of understanding where everything is, is leading to from the very beginning of this book. And I have to tell you, it's always hard to be the first one to speak at a conference of this nature because, uh, you know, and I, and, and I think that's why Fred's not here because he, he assigned me this, <laughs> Pastor Fred, so I'm, I'll come after him, you know. No, actually, I'm, I'm thankful. I'm thankful because the Lord put it on his heart and, and it, I think it's necessary for us at least to, to lay this foundation down. So chapters four and five now of Revelation take us into heaven with John. And it is there that John sees the Lamb, Jesus, the only one worthy to open the seals, take the scroll from the right hand of the Father. And we see in verses six and seven of chapter five, these words, it says, and I beheld, now again, John is telling us what he sees. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when this happens, the four beasts and the 24 elders will fall down before the Lamb and a new song is going to be sung in heaven. Thou art worthy. This is verse 9, by the way. Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou was slain. The second time we see that mentioned. Thou was slain and has redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And what we find there is heaven resounding with praise and worship that is directed toward Jesus Christ, not in, in some sense of this, this, this wonderful heavenly glory, but praising him as the lamb that was slain. The lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. What he came to do on this earth what he put flesh on to do for us because we couldn't do it ourselves. And heaven is praising him and worshiping him in this, in this context. And, and even verse 13, this is interesting. You can look at it later, but even in verse 13 of chapter 5 suggests that even the devil and his, his lost hosts will be forced in spite of themselves to praise the Lamb. Interesting thing there. Okay, I'll read it. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them here heard I saying blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. Which brings us to the words of the apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11 because we need to praise the Lord as well, for the very reason that they praised him in heaven. Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue, not just some tongues, not just most tongues, every tongue, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. 
Now, we all know that this scene here in chapters 4 and 5 has not yet taken place. But it most certainly will. It will take place. Right before the Lord implements and right before he enforces his plan of judgment by the breaking of the seals on the scroll. He's taken the, sea, he's taken the scroll and everyone praises him because he alone is worthy. He's been given the authority he has been given the opportunity and, and certainly the right to open these scrolls, to break them. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the voice, or the, I'm sorry, <coughs> excuse me, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. This is now where the deception begins. A lot of events begin in this chapter, by the way. The opening of the seal judgments starts the tribulation period. An unprecedented time of wars and desolations begin. We'll, we'll see that in the book of Daniel. Here begins the destruction of the powers of darkness and the eventual bringing in of God's everlasting light, of God's everlasting life and liberty, and of God's everlasting righteousness. All begins here. Here begins the work of Israel's and our kinsman redeemer. Our Messiah, who they will know as Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus, the Messiah, in whose hands Almighty God has placed the authority over all that is and was created. And it is here that begins the restoration, the refining, and the reconciliation of Israel. The Israel that the Lord has placed back in the land to accomplish the consummation of the ages. The time has come for God to intervene in human affairs, and so judgment is given to the Son. His plan is laid out for us, actually, in the ninth chapter of the book of Daniel. So I'd like to have you turn to Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. And I'm going to try to do this rather quickly, and I'm, I'm sure that maybe Sandy will add to this and, and the things that he's going to be speaking of as well. So I'm going to try to do this very quickly. I don't want to dwell too much on, on some of these points because we could spend a lot of time in these, uh, in these verses. But here in Daniel 9, verse 24, is that prophecy given of 70 weeks, a time frame. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. 70 weeks that would actually be 70 weeks of years. The word weeks in, in the Hebrew is uh, really dealing with sevens, just seven. So 77s as it were. But 
Overall, we will see how this is speaking of 70 weeks of years. Those are determined. It's something that has been set by the Lord, determined upon thy people, speaking of Israel, of course, because of Daniel, thy people, and upon thy holy city, which is Jerusalem, Mount Zion, as it were. And here's the reason, to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity. First of all, with those three things, that, that has to do with why Israel has been judged and taken into captivity for a certain number of years. And we'll talk about those numbers in just a moment. But it's to finish the transgression, to finish actually the, you know, that it would be finished and, and, and completed as far as the judgment, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for that iniquity, and to bring in everlasting righteousness. So now we're dealing with something that is much more future than just in the time of Daniel or in the time of Jesus, as it were. So... It says to seal up the vision and prophecy, to seal the vision and the prophecy, that it would have, you know, that it would be sealed and set, and to anoint the most holy. To anoint the most holy, Kodesh Kodeshim, which means, of course, it is the anointing of the Messiah to be the one who will be sitting on the throne of David. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks. Now, I'm not going to go into all of the math here, but when you put seven weeks with three score and two weeks, that equals 69 weeks of years. When you do the math, that would be 483 years. Because seven, 70 weeks or seven weeks of years, 70 weeks of years is, of course, 490 years. So we're dealing with 483 years given to us here. But it says, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. So Daniel is, has been given this particular prophecy of Messiah dying and being cut off, but not for himself, for us. And then there's another character introduced here, the people of the prince that shall come and the people of the prince that shall come, the prince that shall come, you got to make sure that's the, the prince that shall come, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Of course, many people said, well, that's Rome. And of course, I was Titus in AD 70. And, and you know, and, and to some extent, of course, that, that, that's what happened in AD 70. But we realize that this is also prophetically pointing to a, a time much further in the future because of the next few phrases. They do destroy the city and the sanctuary, but then it says, and the end thereof shall be of a, with a flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So now we're, we're dealing with a prince that shall come, that is going to come much later than Rome. Because all these other things didn't happen after Rome destroyed Jerusalem. 
until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Well, of course, you know, Rome itself, the Roman Empire, as all the other empires, uh, faded out. And so it wasn't really the people of the prince that shall come. So it's pointing to the future. So then in the future, this prince that shall come shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Simply, we're dealing with someone we will call the beast or the Antichrist. We'll, talk, we'll give some other names to him in just a moment. But that person is going to confirm a covenant with many for one week, for one week of years. That would be how many? Seven years. The last seven years that aren't mentioned previous to this. And in the midst of the week, right in the middle of the seven years, which would make it three and a half years, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. He shall go into the temple that he will allow Israel to build, to start their sacrificial system again. And he will go in, as we shall see in another place, that he goes in, that he would be the one to be worshipped. The overspreading of abominations, that's the greatest of abominations, as it were. He shall make it desolate, even until the consummation, and it's all over with. And that determined shall be poured out, or be poured upon the desolate. Okay, so I wanted to get kind of through all of the math and all of the stuff being said. Most of us are aware of what that passage has to deal with. But Jesus himself now outlined for us the deception of the latter days in his Olivet Discourse. Four times, Jesus refers to the potential of being deceived. What I mean by that is when you read Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, where it says, And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. Notice the word deceive. Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Well, that's been happening historically now for a number of years. People that are false Christ, you know, that claim themselves to be the Messiah or claim themselves to be Christ, whether they are in some you know, pseudo-Christian cult or even in other, you know, non-Christian religions, you know, they call themselves, you know, the Christ consciousness or whatever it is. I mean, that's been going on. But now we're dealing with the latter times and the latter days. He says, take heed, no man deceive you, because there will be many who will come in my name, saying, I am Christ. And then in verses 10 through 12 of Matthew 24, he says, and then shall many be offended and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. So not only will there be false Christ, but there'll be false prophets. Well, we're living in a time of a lot of false prophets. And now they have access to the internet, and they have access to TV, and they have access to radio. They have all kinds of weird access. And people listen to it. And they're being deceived. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. 
Interesting that false prophets will come and deceive many, yet iniquity continues to abound. You would think that if people were religious enough or focused on some kind of a religious uh, lifestyle or pattern that, you know, iniquity would go down. <laughs> Instead, it goes up. And the love of many shall wax or, or grow cold. And then in verses 23 and 24, it says, Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ. Notice, if any man. Not just many, but now if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders. Insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. If it were possible. I would hope and pray that it is impossible. That the very elect would be deceived. I would hope and pray that those that are belonging even now to Jesus Christ are discerning enough. And I do hope and pray that we will today and tomorrow and Sunday, in all of this time here, realize the importance of being discerning of what people are saying. Discerning even what we're doing here today and tomorrow. Being good Bereans, listening, checking things out scripturally. Why? Because we're living in a time of great deception. And they'll, they'll have great signs and wonders. Because people, are man, they're visual. Man, they, like, they like visual things, you know. Don't be fooled. But the great deception that we're concerned about is that which is found in verse 2 of our text. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him had a bow. And, that, and by the way, that, that's a, like, a, like a, you know, a, an archer's bow, not, not one, you know, like <laughs> little Susie wears, wears on her head when she comes to church, okay? So just, just make sure you understand that. He that sat upon him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Now, there, there are some teachers of prophecy that that declare confidently, actually, that the opening of the first seal refers to the second coming of Christ. Others have taught that the first seal represents the gospel and its conquest of the human heart. But it is truly strange that more commentators haven't detected the counterfeit here, the deceiver that is in the text. I mean, let's, let's face it. Jesus appears on a white horse too in chapter 19. You've seen it in our promotional neat little picture that we had for, for the conference. A white horse. Jesus is going to ride on a white horse. Revelation 19 verse 11. And I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. <clears throat> and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. Well, we know who that is. But there's no name given to the one in chapter 6. He that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he does judge and make war. 
That's significant. A little bit different than the one that's in chapter 6. We find some distinctions in comparing the two passages, both chapter 6 and 19, because the context of each is, is entirely different. In chapter 6, we're, we're looking at the beginning of God's judgments. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. And again, we're not talking about you know, football back in the 30s, right? I think it wasn't it the, the four horsemen that, that played for Notre Dame? We're not talking about those guys. It's not Jesus and the three horsemen of the apocalypse. Do you understand that? See, it's not, it's not one and then these three. There are four horsemen. There's, con there, there's continuity in the word of God. There's continuity in context. So in, in chapter 6, you know, we're, we're looking at the beginning of God's judgments. In chapter 19, we see the end of those judgments. But it is a significant matter, and, and take note of this. It's a significant matter that the writer of chapter 6 does bear some resemblance to the appearance of Jesus on his great white horse in chapter 19. Some resemblance. They both ride a white horse. They both wear crowns. And they both are bent on conquest. But the suggestion is that the writer of chapter 6 is someone like Christ, but is not Christ. Now we know that Jesus Christ is not the writer of the white horse in chapter 6 simply because Jesus is the one who opens the first seal. The very fact of his worthiness to open the seals puts him outside and far above the content of the scroll. A second reason that Jesus is not the rider of this white horse has to do with the fact that the remaining seals deal with judgment. It's, it's inconsistent, as I said earlier, that for the first seal to portray Christ as conquering hearts and the other horsemen mentioned with each open seal representing death and tragedy. And then there's the bow. The bow without arrows. By the way, did you notice that? Hey, if you're going to want me to go out there, I want, I want some arrows. Or pencils or anything, you know. I could shoot. This is not Barney Fife here, you know. You don't have the gun, but you, know, you get to have to keep the bullet in your pocket kind of thing. There's a bow without arrows. And a crown also that is given to the rider. Now, now, as for the lack of arrows, what does that suggest? Many people believe that it suggests a, blood, a bloodless conquest. A bloodless conquest. Somebody is good at speaking, talking, persuading, bringing what the world really wants in these days and times. What is that? Peace. Peace. Do you remember the peace treaty mentioned in Daniel 9? And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, for seven years, allowing the temple to be built, allowing the sacrifices to continue. 
But what do we find in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 1 through 3? But of the times and seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. This is a, let, me, let me interject here something very quickly here. The church in Thessalonica was a very, very young church. But in the short time that Paul ministered to them, he taught them prophecy. He taught them prophetic themes. Both First and Second Thessalonians are filled with prophetic issues, prophetic themes. Just as we're reading here. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the seven-year period that we know as the tribulation period, the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. I think it's, it's important to note that all seven years of the tribulation is going to be judgment, not just the last half of it, not just the great tribulation period, even though you can read even back in, in, in uh, Revelation chapter 6 that it talks about the great tribulation period and the wrath that comes with it. But that's suggesting that for the whole time period. I mean, there are going to be people suffering all seven years. It's just going to be intense the last three and a half. But when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. Folks, listen, sudden destruction, not later destruction. Sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child. There's a statement being made that is a, a, a prophetic nugget, especially concerning Israel. They would have known what travail is upon a woman with child from the standpoint of, 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 of prophecy. And notice, they shall not escape. And as gullible and as vulnerable as people are today in believing whatever is told them without thinking or reasoning, and that's much of what we see happening in the world today, and I have to say, we're losing a generation right now. We are losing a generation of young people to the world and to the world system. And, and I, I'm really blessed to see young people in, in this group here today. And I, want, I want them to take hold of these things too because, listen, we were, we were young when we, you know, we were you know, high school age, college age, but we were young when we started hearing about the Lord coming. And then, I'll, I'll tell you this, when I heard about the rapture of the church, I got excited. I got excited. And people say, well, you know, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. You've been a Christian for 47 years. Yeah, and I'm still excited. Because it's not up to me. It's up to the Lord. And when he comes, he's going to come. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I'd have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you will be also. I'm excited. And if the Lord tarries another 47 years and I'm still around, I'll still be excited. Because it has to happen before these seven years. But people are gullible today. And even in churches, they're not talking about prophecy in a lot of churches today. 
You know, well, we heard in, in our singing today, we heard that one great song at first, and then we started hearing about the love of the Lord. Then we started hearing about the things that we are to do to, to, to bring, you know, to, to bring honor and glory to our God. This is what we're supposed to be doing now from here on until Jesus comes. We need to keep looking up and we need to keep looking out and we need to keep encouraging people and we need to be bringing people to Jesus. And we need to stand fast on the word of God. And as Jesus said, occupy till I come. Occupy. That means get busy. I'm thankful for a blessed brother that said something this week to, to some of us that, that, that just is churning in my heart right now. I don't know what time it is. See, I'm looking at both. I don't know what time it is. I don't care. Something churning in my heart. You know what it is? He said, we need to be all in. We need to be all in. Amen. I don't care if you're a leader. By the way, leaders need to be all in. If you're not all in, don't be a leader. You need to be all in. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to be all in Amen. for Jesus. Amen. We're losing generation of kids. We need, to, we need to show them the love of Christ. And we need to show them the truth. Amen. The truth. So the world in general is primed for greater deceptions. The mind and the wills of men will be overpowered, in this case without any physical destruction and without the shedding of blood. Isn't that what most people want today? A, a utopian world where there is no true God because man has reached their own level of deity. That's a deception. That was a deception born in the garden. Did God really say those things? He didn't say that. He just doesn't want you to be like him. What a deception. Consider, if you will, 2 Thessalonians. And we're going to read a good chunk of this here. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 through 12. Let no man deceive you by any means, Paul says. Are you, are you getting the gist of the, of the word of God today? Let, 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 no, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. An apostasia. A falling away. Except there come a falling away first and that man of sin be revealed. The son of perdition. The man of sin, the son of perdition, who is he? The rider of the white horse? Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God? Much, much like his, his chief. In Isaiah 14, Lucifer. I will be exalted above the Most High. But here is this man of sin, this son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. The abomination of desolation. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? 
And now you know what withholds it, what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity does already work. Now, when did the last day start? <laughs> started way back then. The mystery of iniquity is already working. Only he who now letteth will let. In other words, he who now restrains will restrain until he be taken out of the way. The great restrainer is the Holy Spirit in the church of Jesus Christ. And when the church is taken out of the way at the rapture, it doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit is taken away because you can, the Holy Spirit is God. He, you can't be, you know, he's, he's ever present. It's the restraining aspect of the Holy Spirit. Now that the church is gone, there's nothing to restrain the Antichrist, the beast, the, the man of sin, the son of perdition. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Notice, not, not just wonders, but lying wonders. You think of guys like David Copperfield, you know, where they're making elephants disappear, you know, or airplanes disappear. It's all done with mirrors or something, right? But he doesn't make them disappear. Did you understand? I mean, this, you slight a hand, the people are going to go, wow. And they're, they're kind of doing that now. They're doing it now. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And, and for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, which is an even greater deception in, in a sense, that they, might, they, they, they should believe a lie. You don't want to believe the truth? Then here's more of the lie. That they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Lastly, the crown is, is not at all the same as the crown worn by Jesus in chapter 19. The rider of the white horse in chapter 6 is given a Stephanos, Stephanos, the simple laurel wreath awarded to the person who had won a victory in the Olympic-style games of the time. Jesus, on the other hand, is depicted in this manner. Let's go back to verse 11 of chapter 19. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. The word in the Greek is diademata. We have the English word diadem. A great jeweled crown. A royal crown. 
And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. The deceiver comes to deceive and to say, oh, listen, I'm going to bring peace to you. The whole world will bow down to him. A bloodless conquest, but the blood will come. Jesus rides on that white horse, eyes as a flame of fire. He comes to judge. It's time we get serious with Jesus and realize this is going to happen because it's written. His name is called the Word of God. That's his name. In the beginning was the Logos, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus wears many diadems, the crown of royalty and majesty. I just made a friend. And so the rider of the white horse that is loosed by the opening of the first seal, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> is a counterfeit Christ. A counterfeit Christ. The word antichrist means more than just against Christ. It can also mean in the place of or a substitute for Christ. Certainly not one assigned by the Lord in the sense of being in the place of, but one allowed by the Lord in the last days. The world is primed. The world is ready for a false Christ. Even Jesus predicted the world's rejection of the true Christ when he said in John 5, 40, 43, I am come in my Father's name, and you receive me not. If another shall come in his own name, him you will receive. Let, let's really get to know the real Jesus. Let's get to know the real Jesus. You know, people were deceived. I mean, let's face it, down through the ages, the mo more recently, of course, you know, we could go back to the 20th century, we can go back to Hitler in, in, in Germany, how he deceived so many people. He was a forerunner of Antichrist, certainly. And there are people who have been down through the ages. I hate to say it, even a couple of presidents, man, it's the same thing. Deceiving people, people singing songs to them. The only, song, the only people singing songs today about our president are the ones that want to get rid of him, you know. It's kind of sad, isn't it? We've lost respect for the office. But when you get down to it, we have one thing to do. We need to get to know the real Jesus. We need to know him. Let's really get to know him this weekend. Jesus said in John 10, verses 14 and 15, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He's laid down his life for us. Do you know him? Get to know him. And if you know him, get to know him more. I'll never forget the words of a Chinese Christian. Back in 1989, I had the privilege of joining the team that went to 
the Philippines and Macau and Hong Kong. And, and part of the reason for going to Hong Kong back then was to take Bibles into communist China. And the only way you could do it then was to smuggle them. So we were a team of smugglers <laughs> taking Bibles into China. But, uh, and, and some people got caught and they weren't allowed to go in and you know, they took the Bibles and all. But the ones that did go in were able to sit with Chinese Christians who had to endure uh, persecution every day because they would, they would only speak Christ. They would not bow down to the government. They would get persecuted for it. So there was a, a man back then who was 75. I'm sure he's with the Lord now. But a 75-year-old Chinese Christian who was asked the question by us, by the team, what, what is it that you would like in your life? What, what, what would you like? Can we bring you something? Can we give you something? What, is there anything that you, that you want? And his only response was, I want to know Christ better. I want to know Jesus better. I leave you with that.